0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet.
1: Hi, Mike and Tamar. This is Sarah. I'm an old college friend of Mike's, but I'm actually calling now since I'm a pediatrician in the Bay Area in California, and I take care of a lot of teenagers. And as most people have heard, a lot of teenagers have had a really rough time during the pandemic with a lot more anxiety and depression. I have days at work where almost half of my patients are seeing me for mental health concerns, which, you know, is obviously so upsetting. And one of the topics that comes up sometimes when I talk with these teenagers is they're worried about the climate. I think there's this sense of helplessness um, because they feel like it's just inevitable that things are going to keep getting worse with global warming. And is life really going to be livable when they grow up? This isn't just some theoretical thing for them to be anxious about. You know, in the last few years in the Bay Area, we've had to deal with heat waves, drought, and of course, lots of wildfires. There was one day in 2020 when the skies were a weird orange all day from the wildfire smoke. It was like something out of an apocalyptic movie. So my questions for you are, should these teenagers be so worried about the climate? Are there some good talking points I can use when I talk to them to help them feel less anxious? And are there things they can do in their lives to help with the climate problem? All right. Well, thanks. I'll look forward to hearing your suggestions. And one last thing, Mike, you've referred a few times in previous episodes to Cal Davis. That's almost as bad as calling San Francisco Frisco. It's UC Davis to us Californians. All right.
0: Bye-bye. Sarah, thank you so much for calling. And any friend of Mike's is a friend of mine, especially if you manage to correct him about something.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course you're going to like her when she's busting my chops on UC <laughs> Davis, right? The uh, the Aggies, by the way, <laughs> which I, I got to admit- You
0: had to look that up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> look, I, I got to admit it was a good catch. Although maybe you can see why Sarah and I decided it would be best if we lived in opposite corners of the country. (laughs) Seriously, though, uh, she's a great person and she cares so deeply about her patients, which is why her call was so heartbreaking.
0: It was. It really was. I mean, and we talk about climate every week and we try hard to look at it as, you know, a cold, hard, factual issue. It's a substantive issue. It's a policy issue. And I think sometimes we get a little far away from the fact that it's also a really emotional issue, especially for younger people.
2: You know, there was, there was a bit of a ruckus over a story in the Washington Post last week, right? The, the headline was, campuses are offering therapy for anxiety over climate change. I saw a lot of people goofing on it. And I, but I see headlines like this all the time. If climate anxiety keeps you up at night, here's how to cope. Uh, the American Psychological Association, they found that nearly half of younger Americans say eco-anxiety affects their daily lives, and globally, there was a study in The Lancet that found that 59% of people ages 16 to 25 are very worried about climate change. Now, look, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of some of these surveys, but setting aside the numbers, the phenomenon is obviously real, and Sarah sees it in her office every day.
0: I totally believe that it's real. And it's obviously not an issue that's specific to food, which is the thing we talk about all the time. But we're kind of assuming that people who listen to the show, uh, climavores, care about the climate. And since Sarah asked some really good questions, we thought we'd try to answer them. How worried should kids and, I guess, everyone be? And... Is there any way that we can
2: sort of move our emotional needle on this? Can we feel better? I mean, the first thing we ought to say up front is that we are not mental health professionals. We are totally not (laughs) mental health professionals. I mean, if you're really struggling with this stuff or you know someone who is, please, I mean, get help. And not from nerdy, low-EQ journalists like us, from compassionate caregivers like Sarah – I did see there was a lot of mockery about that Washington Post story on Twitter. This isn't the easiest time to grow up, right? I mean, the climate is a really scary issue. You know, the algorithms are bombarding kids with, you know, on their phones with stories about how the end is nigh. And anxiety is, it's a real thing. It's not a joke. It is. And, you know,
0: we think about this issue all the time. And we both have kids who think about this issue all the time. And so even though, obviously, this isn't medical advice, that's not our gig, but we do want to talk about it because I think sometimes with something so charged, the rhetoric can sort of get ahead of the facts. And I guess we're here in the persistent, although probably vain hope, that maybe the facts can get ahead of the
2: rhetoric. That's right. I and mean, we're not in the business of telling people not to be concerned about climate change. Everybody should be concerned about climate change. We, we wouldn't be doing this show if we didn't think it was a really serious threat to human welfare. But there's concern and then there's anxiety. Uh, we don't want to minimize how it feels to be a kid in the Bay Area when it's 110 degrees and the sky is a smoky mess. But we don't want anybody to be feeling anxiety.
0: Absolutely. And obviously, some of the facts around climate change are difficult and disturbing, But we also think that some of the facts can be reassuring and even empowering. And that's why we wanted to do an episode about
2: this. Yeah, hope feels a lot better than fear. And there's all kinds of evidence for hope. And as Sarah suggested, I think that trying to be part of the solution can feel a lot better than doom scrolling about the problem. So basically, we are going to step a little outside our
0: wonky wheelhouse here and get a little bit of distance between us and FACTS so we can face head-on the feelings about climate change.
2: I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. Keep calm and carry on, because this is Climavores, a show that's usually about eating, but today is a little more about coping on a changing planet.
0: Okay, Mike, before we actually talk about the feelings about what's happening, I think we should sort of set the stage and do like a climate 101, what's actually happening. And this this is your beat. This is your wheelhouse. You did so much great work on climate at Politico. And so I'm hoping you can sort of walk us through where are we and is it improving? Where is it improving? what is the state of the climate right now
2: I mean the summary is you know it's real it's us it's here and it's bad you know we can't can't sugarcoat that I mean you look at atmospheric carbon numbers right it was 280 parts per million, just about all the way up until the Industrial Revolution when we started, you know, blasting out all these fossil fuels. And then it kind of gradually moved up to 350 parts per million, you know, by about the 1990 when we did the Kyoto Protocol. And 350 is really, that's... Kind of the break-even point for stabilizing the climate that we want to get back to. Because since 1990, it's shot up to, as of Monday, it was at 416 parts per million. So far, my anxiety is not alleviated. Yeah, well, it's like a three million year high. And obviously, you know, the carbon in the atmosphere is what's trapping all that heat and warming us up. So yes, not good, right? We've already seen temperatures climb about one degree Celsius, maybe 1.2 degrees. The last seven years have been the hottest seven years in recorded history. Um, look, we've got this international goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees, and we're almost certainly going to blow past it. <laughs> so, so that's not good. And look, we can see the impacts, right? Pakistan is. Underwater, (laughs) China is having its worst drought on record. You know, Greenland is having its worst ice melts on record. Look, you're seeing this extreme weather. You know, you're seeing chaos. Right? You've got locusts in India and Kenya. These are like biblical plagues. And I do think what's happening in the Bay Area. You know, this unbelievable heat wave is really classic. My brother lives in San Francisco, and they don't have air conditioning because it's not supposed to get this hot. So uh, they have. Have, you know, they got an air conditioner for the kids' room, and they all slept in there for a week. I mean, you know, at the same time, you're seeing you know climate-driven wildfires that are creating more emissions in California than all of the solar panels that state have have put on their rooftops—a million solar roofs—and and the. Basically the wildfilers are offsetting it. And then you've got, you know, the the drought is also taking farmland out of production because they don't have water. And that's creating around the world more deforestation, as we talk about all the time. So again, not to pour on the, the bad news, but you are starting to see these doom loops that everybody's afraid of, right? Where
0: well, that list that you just gave us is hardly a litany of reassurance
2: here. It, it's- right. No, look, I don't want, you know, every day you can see a new story about how, oh, you know, the Amazon, you know, not all, these fires in the Amazon are creating this kind of, you know, perpetual problem where the Amazon isn't going to be able to grow back. You know, the permafrost up in the, in the north, uh, it's melting and that's going to create more melting of the permafrost. It's just, you know, we're using more air conditioning and that, of course, creates more global warming. It's just, uh, you know, there, There are a lot of bad things happening. All right. We're going to cancel
0: this episode of (laughs) (laughs) Climacores because obviously we can't help you with anxiety. Unless, Mike, you have some good news on the flip side of this.
2: Well, yeah. The good news is, you know, now we have climate policy and we have climate progress. Uh, That's a new thing, right? I mean, uh, really, before... 2007, 2008, there was nothing. So a lot of these climate, you know, these kids who are feeling all this anxiety, climate policy is younger than they are, right? Um, Right. They grew up in a world where it was all bad news. Um, But now you're seeing particularly electricity is the famous one, where, you know, coal, which was basically how we powered the world for a very long time. And in the United States, since 2010, we've cut our coal use in half. Right now, coal is at the lowest level in the United Kingdom since the invention of the steam engine. And at the same time, you're having this incredibly rapid growth of solar, wind, and now battery storage and other forms of storage to basically store that renewable energy when it the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And all of these are, you know, they're taking off not just because the government is saying do it, but because the costs are plummeting. All of them are down 90 percent.
0: Since we listened to some of the same people on Twitter, maybe you saw this, um, that uh, carbon emissions among Americans is at about the level it was 100 years ago because it has dropped significantly over the last several decades.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. And you're seeing it with transportation, which is behind electricity, Mm -hmm. but it's now starting, right? Uh, Electric vehicles are taking off. In July, this July was the first time globally they were 10% of sales. When I moved to Miami um, and I looked into getting solar panels and it was like a complete joke. It was so expensive. The panels were terrible. The closest guy I could find who even installed them was up in Vero Beach, three hours away. When I finally got him on the phone, he said, is cost an object? And I was like, oh, yes. Cost is an object. Needless to say, I didn't do it. Um, Electric cars were like not a thing. There was a new documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car? Because General Motors had literally scrapped their initial electric cars. I'm old (laughs) enough to remember that one. (laughs) But But then 10 years later in 2017... I got solar panels for for my roof and I got an electric car because it was an economic no-brainer. So this stuff has really changed and we're starting to see climate action, right? Um, You saw the Paris Climate Accord where all the nations around the world, they pledged that they were going to take really serious action to dramatically reduce their carbon emissions. Fortune 500 companies are making these net zero pledges and not just like kind of the good companies, pretty much every major company. We we have to do an episode about those
0: pledges and the carbon offsets that underlie them. And I just I had to get that in because I think it's really important that some of this is not bona fide progress.
2: It's a fair point. But look, what it reflects is the change in the zeitgeist, right, where now it's no longer cool to say that, uh, that if you're a corporation that you don't care about the climate. Even Wall Street, you know, has to maybe they're just pretending, but if you follow the money, they are actually taking some of this stuff really seriously. And we saw our political system, even in the United States, at least the Democratic Party, just pass this Inflation Reduction Act that we did a whole episode Mm -hmm. about that is probably the biggest single action that any country has ever taken to try to deal with the climate. So again, look, I'm not saying that things are going well, but you had uh, 2014, the United Nations big... You know, the IPCC big report on climate said that business as usual was heading for five degrees Celsius of global warming. And that basically, that means New York City under 200 feet of water. That is like apocalypse. That is like, you know, that's when you start talking about like, you know, an existential threat to all humanity. Now they're saying it's like maybe 3 degrees, 2.5 degrees. Still terrible, very bad for very many people, but we're not talking about human extinction. And that's a good thing, too.
0: I want to sort of fill in a little bit on the food part of this, because the fact that we're making progress on some of those fronts that you just enumerated— kind of means that food becomes a bigger part of the picture because we're not making progress on food. And we talk about this a lot, that food is kind of materially different from energy, from infrastructure, because so much of that progress that you talked about has to do with governments and companies making these decisions and doing things differently, and, and, you know, part of that is motivating consumers, but part of that are choices that consumers just don't have much part in. But food starts with the things that people like to eat. And, you know, right now, food emissions, depending on who you ask, are about a quarter to a third of our total system. But as the total system improves and food doesn't, that becomes a bigger share. And the biggest share of that share is, of course, meat. And we talk about that all the time. And one of the inexorable trends that makes food play into this climate change equation is that as countries get richer, as people get richer, meat consumption goes up Almost every time, and if you look at a chart that shows GDP per capita and meat consumption per capita, it's you know it's practically a straight line. And so, as people are getting richer, which is great, the more people out of poverty, the better. But they do put their sights on higher meat diets, even though I mean, meat production globally has has gone up, up, up. Now there was a little blip for COVID, and, you know, it's sort of hard to see exactly yet how that's recovering. But all the projections are, you know, up to 2050 that meat continues to go up. And, you know, just here in the United States, our meat consumption per capita from 1960 to 2013, which is, I think, the last year we had comparable data, almost doubled from about 50 pounds to about 100 pounds. And, you know, in the U.S., we're sort of outliers when it comes to meat eating. But most developed countries are going in that direction. And as lesser developed countries come along the economic scale, of course, that goes in the same direction. So it's been a problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thing that People do when they escape poverty is they start to eat more meat. And, uh, and look, as we've said on this show a million times, if we stopped using fossil fuels around the world tomorrow, all of us... Um, we would still have, we would still be on track to blow through our Paris targets um, because of the food and agriculture problem. And like to to just add to everybody's climate anxiety for just a second, like, we got to remember that these are cu- this is a math problem and it's a cumulative problem. So again, you know, it's like we're filling the bathtub with our emissions. Um, what you know, the carbon we emit when you. You know, eat a burger or, uh, you know, charge your phone today, that you know, stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years. Um, so, you know, even if we stop, even if we get it right, um, it's not going to start getting cooler until we figure out a way to get carbon out of the atmosphere. So, you know, we've probably hit peak oil. We've certainly passed peak coal. We have not hit peak meat. Um, Hopefully we're near peak emissions, but that's not good enough.
0: So, okay. I guess if we're going to talk about climate anxiety first, we have to make sure you have it before we talk (laughs) about what to do about it. So those are the facts that we're talking about. And now we're gonna step out of our wonky wheelhouse and we're gonna talk about feelings.
2: So Tamar, you know, we're on Twitter, we read the news, every day we're seeing stories or at least advocates who are saying, you know, we need to reduce emissions X percent by X date or else we're totally screwed. Um, You know, we're all heading for the apocalypse. And I'm curious, Like, do you feel some anxiety about this?
0: I kinda did a little bit of soul searching when I knew we were doing this to sort of ask myself how I felt about this. I also asked my husband, um, and I asked our kids who are in their 20s and 30s. I will say, I don't think I'm particularly anxious. And I asked Kevin, my husband, and he said, "No, that he wasn't." And I asked him why not?" And he said that he had a sense that people were really on it that and you know he talked about some of the things that you talked about, the improvements that we're making and but I think I'm not anxious for a different reason, and maybe it's because I see so many of the headlines about the the bad things, and I hear the catastrophists and and I think I'm not anxious because I'm kind of old. And I think that before the worst effects of climate change are visited on humans, I probably will be gone and I won't see it. And of course, I'm concerned about my kids. I'm concerned about your kids. I'm concerned about everybody's kids. I'm concerned about humans. Um, But it becomes less of a fraught issue when it's not your own self that that's going to feel the consequences.
2: How, how about you? Do, do you have anxiety? I mean, I really don't. Um, and this may just be because I'm, you know, such an annoying rationalist. Um, and I think also it may be partly because I make up you know I live in Miami right I'm at ground zero for you know for the climate crisis um, and so part of it may just be you know there's a certain amount of denial right've I've learned to tune out these constant stories about how my city is turning into atlantis um right I always think of this that uh, that classic onion headline right like yeah yeah nation gets it we're rapidly approaching end of critical window to a climate collapse or whatever, right? Um, and I think there's, there's some of that, right? We don't live our lives as if, you know, we're in a call 911 emergency. You know, we're not all, we're all not all Greta Thunberg. Um, But also, I think, that you know, rationally, that it's not right that that we're, you know, we have to do X by Y date, right? If we do X minus one by 2030, you know, that won't be quite as good as doing X, um, but the world isn't going to come to an end. And if we do do X by 2030. Um, that doesn't mean we're all going to be fine, right? I mean, I, I, I try to take my sort of better is better than worse approach, um, you know, writ large, which is like, you know, climate change is bad. And let's face it, and for many people, it's going to get worse, Look, Paradise, California, which was wiped out by a wildfire, they already had their climate apocalypse. But you know, the more yeah, we can do... They could have another one. Well, the more we can do, the fewer apocalypses we're going to have um, and the fewer people are going to get hurt. So I just don't think there's a lot to be gained by the kind of, you know throwing your hands up in the air. And I do think that some of the alarmism becomes background noise. But
0: wait a second. I think uh, I think we can agree there's nothing to be gained by being anxious. You know, when I'm running late for a flight, <laughs> being anxious about it isn't going to change a damn thing. Anxiety is something I don't think that that we can consciously control. And, you know, the fact that some people have it and some people don't, is probably, you know, 90% about temperament and, you know, who's prone to anxiety. And I'm probably less prone to anxiety than a lot of people. And and you are an annoying
2: rationalist. Well, and I think also we should also make it clear that some of this is also – you might call it privilege, um, but whatever you want to call it. um, You know, I actually asked my 14-year-old son, who um, is an even more annoying rationalist than I am. He's really, he's like a wise Buddha. And I asked him if he felt uh, anxiety. And he said no, because first of all, even though we do live in Miami, we live in like the highest point of Miami, we're at 17 feet elevation in Coconut Grove, which for Miami is like the Himalayas. You know, we'll we'll end up with beachfront property when the the seas rise. So Max said, like, look, we're we're on higher ground. <laughs> you know, we're probably going to be okay. And if we're not okay, we have the means to move, um, which is true. Um, so the downside of this is that for you know a lot of the global poor, if you're living on a floodplain in Bangladesh, um, you really are, you know, this really is an existential threat to you. But to most of us, it really isn't, even though it, you know, which is maybe a insensitive thing to say. Um, but to me, that's sort of a reason to care a lot about the climate and, to, you know, because we're good people who want to help others. But it's not a reason to walk around in constant fear that, you know, it's about to take us out. Um, look, and I think, It's hard if you're, you know, Sarah's patients who are stuck inside in 100-degree heat um, and the sky's on fire and they're looking at their phones and they're, you know, it's telling them that the world is about to come to an end. It's understandable that they're anxious. We are filling our sky with the, you know, the same types of chemicals that are are rendered Venus uninhabitable. But, you know, most of the Earth is still inhabitable for most of us.
0: And, you know, the point about Sarah's patients who are dealing with the heat and the wildfires and other tangible consequences of this, I think those things are going to make it that much harder to not be anxious. Now, our kids are older than your kids. And before we taped, I, I sent them a text and I said, tell me, do you guys have... Uh, climate anxiety, are you... I said, do you feel anxious about the state and future of the world because of climate change? And our daughter, who's 36, Fallon, said, yes, all caps, and they answered right away. And our son, Eamon, who is 26, wrote big time. And uh, and then they all... Both Fallon and Eamon and Fallon's boyfriend, Kelly, said, yes, not only do they have anxiety... But they also feel like the things that they do, and they all do things to try, you know, to make climate-friendly choices, they feel like those things are are almost pointless. And Fallon said, it all feels out of our hands slash control, that the small things we put pressure on ourselves to do to make things better actually have no real impact. And Kelly said... Yes, I feel anxious and pessimistic most of the time when comparing my minuscule personal actions to the change needed at the global, corporate and government levels. And so uh, our kids definitely feel anxiety and, you know, they're they're not feeling the, you know, the wildfire smoke and the super high temperatures that we saw out west this this month?
2: You know, I I feel really bad about that. This is mostly, if we're going to blame people, let's mostly blame the, you know, the people who you know, covered up in the fossil fuel industry, et cetera, et cetera. But (laughs) that said, it makes me really upset. Um, And I've written about this, and at some point we'll do a whole episode about individual action. Um, But I hate it how a lot of environmentalists have, for kind of understandable reasons, because systemic action is more important, because corporate action is, you know, More, you know, a way of targeting the people who did this. Um, But they've really made it sound like individual action doesn't matter, right? The Earth Day generation, the whole idea was like we have looked at the enemy and the enemy is us. It was all about, you know, don't litter and uh, don't litter our planet as well, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, what is what are carbon emissions, but atmospheric litter, there was a real sense that we're all in this together. And that is not the message of the climate movement anymore. There was that famous, uh, that headline that said, I- I'm an environmentalist and I don't care if you recycle. Um, but, uh, you know, you should care, right? And, uh, you know, if we're going to tell everybody that this is a crisis um, and at the same time telling people that your individual actions don't matter at all, it's just, n- it's no wonder that it's a very confusing message Message to young people
0: sure and and especially because one of the individual actions that they talk about a lot is the decision to have children themselves because of all the things we do the thing that has the biggest impact on climate is that one decision and you know Fallon told me that her friends talk about it all the time, and it plays into their decisions about their own futures and their own families. And you know, I have to say that—I mean, my, my procreation ship sailed a long time ago. But but if I were in a position now to decide to have children. I don't think that I would. You know, maybe it's just easy for me to say from the position where I am where, you know, I already have my wonderful family. And so so I can't actually say what I really would do. But that's what it feels like to me, that I wouldn't bring a kid into a world
2: with this kind of uncertainty looming. I mean, that makes me sad, <laughs> first of all. Um and, and I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, there, there are a lot of climate scolds who are, like, literally anti-baby. They're, like, telling you, like, don't have kids, you know, how dare you, and I hate that. Um, you know, I think, like, obviously, everybody should make their own choices. Um, but what I would tell people is, like, Go have Greta Thunberg, you know? Maybe your kid's going to save the world. And I do think that, you know, having a child in some way, it's like, you know, it's like a vote of confidence in the future. Um, And this is still, like, not to wax too, you know, earnest, but this is still a freaking awesome planet. You know, it's got pizza and, you know, etc. And, you know, all kinds of really cool things um, that make it a lot... (laughs) Well, there may, there, those are two things that can't be improved. And actually, I would say that maybe the maybe the third thing that comes to mind is parenthood, um, which is, to me, the most wonderful thing about being alive. And the idea that there are climate activists saying, you know, don't do that, um, it just feels like they, they've lost the thread. Obviously, if you don't want to, that that makes me sad, but I understand it. I think that those things that you said are super important because— The question isn't,
0: is the climate situation serious? Because, of course, the answer is yes. The question is, okay, well, how is there a way that we can sort of control our own mindset so that we can do what's constructive and not be destroyed by the inexorable flow of bad news? Right. And uh, so, okay, I have a a confession. So I, I limit my news exposure about stuff that's bad. I read headlines, I'll read first paragraphs, and of course, you know, for example, I know that a third of Pakistan was underwater, um, but I did not read the details of any of those stories because I I just, there's only a certain amount of human suffering um, I can read about before I'm sort of paralyzed by it.
2: Me too. Guilty as charged.
0: And, you know, my husband, Kevin makes fun of me because, like, if we're trying to choose a movie to watch, he, like, there's so many that I don't want to watch because I don't want to watch bad things unfold. So he's like, okay, well, this one has lots of puppies and rainbows. (laughs) I'm like, okay, yeah, I am totally pro-puppies and rainbows and pizza and excedrin and the things in this world that are good. And so for me... The way I manage it is by trying to to increase my exposure to the things that are good and in my work and in my life, I try and focus on this little sliver of the world, this little food sliver of the world where I hope to understand it. I hope to maybe on a good day bring something to the table that helps somebody else understand it. And talk sort of relentlessly about how to improve
2: it. tomorrow that's so important what you're saying. Because remember, like, there's always been bad stuff out in the world. You know, we're all mortal. <laughs> like, something bad's going to happen to all of us. You know, spoiler alert. Um, but obviously, like, you can choose to spend all of your life thinking about it or not. And one thing that's really different is like, you know, unlike... You know, we, I was a kid in the 80s, right, where there was this horrible famine in Ethiopia and we did see the images, but we weren't bombarded with the images all day long. Um, and that, I think, is a real problem of this social media environment where, you know, they have these algorithms to monetize our fears. Um, it's really difficult to, uh, you know— avoid the click. You know, it is a kind of addiction. And that's one area where as parents, I think, you know, we do try to, uh, you know, we should try to protect our, our kids from some of the, uh, you know, the constant diet of doom. Um, I, I think of the a classic example of where I really screwed up in this, um, because let's also remember that, you know, climate isn't the only threat we face, um, back in 2016, I was on the, you know, I covered a lot of the Trump campaign and I was going to these rallies and they were uh, pretty bad. And uh, and they were, you know, um, you know, not to get too deep into it, but I left them, A, convinced that this guy can't be president. I mean, come on. Um, but also, B, if somehow this guy becomes president, it's going to be, you know, a freaking disaster. Um, and I was at that time, you know, my youngest Lena was, uh, she was six. And I was basically reassuring her, you know, uh, you know, I'd tell the stories, but I'd be like, don't worry, this guy is not going to be president. And then I'll never forget the morning of whatever it was, November 7th. She was like, Daddy, you promised. <laughs> um, and uh, And she still reminds me about that. But look, to some extent, you know, our jobs as parents is like, we're, supposed to be the stewardess right on the plane you know we're supposed, when there's turbulence we're supposed to act like oh this is normal it's perfectly normal don't worry about it um, we're not supposed to be like ah the plane's gonna crash um, and uh, you know that's that's not helpful to our children's state of mind um, but it's a, you know it's a very difficult balance to strike um, and uh, and I think in our own lives, You know, I do yoga. (laughs) I try to reduce my exposure to this stuff too because it's not healthy and to the extent you can't do anything about it. Look, I think it's important not to blame parents and especially to blame kids um, for being upset about this stuff uh, because objectively, (laughs) you know, there's stuff to be upset about. Right. I mean, you can see how climate change is in many ways. It's like kryptonite for this. You know, we have this now focused change averse species. Right. And we're facing this invisible enemy that isn't going to kill most of us in the short term. But, you know, we somehow need to act together across national borders to transform our economies in the in the long term and it's going to be hard and obviously we we all just lived through covid like which is not a great sign for you know how how humans deal with wicked problems but again like also but the flip side is right we're you know we, things change, right? We have, uh, you know, we're sitting here with, you know, all the accumulated knowledge in human history in our pockets. Um, You know, we didn't have that a few years ago. Um, And humans are amazing at inventing things. And I do think that one thing that sets us apart from other beasts, and this is something that we're always being reminded of by self-help gurus and also rafting guides, right, is that... uh, you can participate in your own rescue, right? That's something we can do. Um, And it's true, like, you know, you and me are not going to solve climate change. But I do think there's something helpful from feeling that, you know, we're all in this together, and we can all do our own part.
0: And, you know, I think that I would love if there was one thing I could sort of convince our kids of, it's that Yeah, doing those small things um, feels ineffective because you're just doing it at home in your apartment in Brooklyn. But if your friends are doing it and their friends are doing it and all of a sudden everybody starts doing it, that's when it makes a difference. And, And I think that food is where people can really make a difference. And, you know, we talked about this up top and we've talked about it before, that we're not making progress on food. And one of the reasons we're not making progress on food is that it's not, for the most part, a top-down issue. It's not like electrifying the grid. Um, People are choosing what to eat and they're not changing very much. I see some little indications. People are certainly saying they're eating less meat, although we haven't seen that reflected in meat sales data. But food is the place where individual action is going to be the catalyst for a lot of the change. And, you know, I live in this house where we can't have solar panels unless we cut down a million trees. And, you know, we've opted to keep the trees. And so food is the thing that I know that we can try and work on. And and we try really hard to do... We still eat meat, but we do the two things that I would argue are most important. We eat very little beef and we waste very very little food. And so if you do those two things or two other things that are important, I would argue that it can matter in the aggregate,
2: but we can't have aggregate unless we have individuals. Right, right. And remember, you know, it's you know, one way to think of it is that it's kind of, like, subversive, right? My solar panels are screwing my evil utility, and uh, and my my electric car is screwing the oil companies. Like, I'm not, you know, giving them money anymore. And there's, you know, there's something to both positive and, you know, I'm helping solar companies. It's the same thing with meat, um, where, you know, you can vote with your mouth against— JBS and you can also, you know, vote in favor of some of these, you know, alternative protein companies that are that are trying to do something for the planet. And as you said, like it does make a difference because these corporations, you know, they're hold into Wall Street, and they need their margins, and they need to grow. And if they are shrinking instead of growing, they are going to change their approach. And you actually already see some of these evil big food companies that everybody loves to hate. They're embracing the, you know, they're not, no longer calling themselves meat companies, they're calling themselves protein companies, because they follow the consumers. So there's this real conundrum
0: with individual action that, you know, our kids voiced that they felt like their little change couldn't possibly make a difference. And in some cases, that's, that's really true. It's It's like voting. Does it matter if you stay home? No. Most of the time, it doesn't matter if you stay home. But does it matter if everybody stays home? Yeah, it totally matters if everybody stays home. And, you know, if you eat less beef and waste less food, is anything in the world going to change? No. But if your friends do it and their friends do it and it sort of enters the zeitgeist as this is the thing that people do, then yeah, it is going to make a difference.
2: Well, I think the the voting example is, is terrific because, let's face it, we don't necessarily vote because... We think it's going to swing the election. Our individual vote—we vote because we feel like it's the right thing to do. Like we're participating in democracy. Like we're being part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And and that's the same thing with the climate. You know, what's it like? Remember that piece Jonathan Franzen wrote in the New Yorker? You know, where basically it was like, oh, we're all screwed. So you know, you should just watch. You know, watch the birds. You know, um, you know, we're all going. It's all going to hell. And that's just bogus, you know? We can do better or we can do worse. And the thing is, I think young people understand that a lot better than than our generation and certainly the generation that came before us. They wanna be part of this solution. Um, Obviously, I feel bad about all their hangups and anxieties they have, um, but they understand that we're in a war, that it's gonna be a long war. Of course, there's anxiety in war. And there is, unfortunately, there are going to be casualties. And like we always say, like, you know, better is better than worse. We want to try to have fewer casualties. But there's also, there's something, you know, if not rewarding, at least, you know, being part of a war, being part of something larger than yourselves. It's kind of why we're here, right? uh, It's it's empowering. Um, And you have that feeling of community um, that we're all in this together.
0: And I'm usually the one doing the kumbaya, but here we have annoying rationalist Mike Grunewald finding the silver lining of climate change anxiety as sort of an antidote to the whole bowling alone, every man for himself ethos. Come
2: together (laughs) right now.
0: Don't quit your day job, Mike. And I hope that's true. I hope there's something to it. And I hope that, that people can find common cause in this and fight the good fight. But I'm not giving up on my puppies and rainbows.
2: That's fair. We just have to give our puppies a plant-based diet.
0: Climavores is a production of PostScript Media. And we do best when we're talking with you. So please call us. Give us your questions, your comments. We're at 508-377-3449. Or you can email us at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamara Haspel.
2: And me, Michael Grunwald.
0: Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey are executive producers. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abawaje is the associate producer.
2: Engineering by Sean Marquin and Greg Vilfrog. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. We really appreciate all of you listening, and you've been spreading the word. We appreciate that, too. You can still give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And please, if you know somebody else who you think would like the show, pass them a link. And come back next week to hear all about trees.